The subject of the talk tonight is the Brahma Viharas. A Zen master was asked one time, what's the value of a lifetime of practice? And I was really curious what the Zen master was going to say because I expected something like, well, after a lifetime of practice, just before you die, you sit up in perfect Zazen posture and you utter a spontaneous poem expressing your deepest realization. You know, and then you go. Uh, he didn't say anything quite that, um, that idealistic. The Zen master said the value of a lifetime of practice is an appropriate response. I thought this was beautiful because it points to the fact after we've practiced, the way it shows up is how we respond in the moment over and over and over and over. The fruit of our practice is responding appropriately in each new moment. That's enough. Because as practitioners, we recognize that anything can happen at any time. So one day, a friend of ours had visited the Ramana ashram in southern India and afterwards went for a vacation on a, on a beach nearby. And it happened to be December 26th, 2004. And if you remember, that was a catastrophic date in that part of the world. So he was um, standing on the beach in front of his cottage, beachfront cottage, practicing Qigong, and a big wave came up and knocked him over. But then it went back out and he was able to stand up. But as he stood up, he saw this wave receding in a really unusual way. And it was leading a, leaving a huge depression as it went back out. Very abnormal wave formation. And he said, this doesn't look so good. So he hopped up onto a concrete wall and he grabbed a hold of a palm tree. And then the second wave came in. And that was the really devastating one that hit Thailand and India and Burma. But because he had grabbed a hold of the palm tree and stood on the concrete wall, he was high enough and had enough of a grip that it washed in, washed out, and he was okay. This is one time when the practice of non-clinging was not advised. (laughs) Clinging was very helpful to him. But of course, lots of people didn't have a palm tree to cling to, and there were a lot of lives lost in that tsunami, but you just never know. Fortunately, he had the mindfulness to look at what was happening and listen to his instincts, Uh uh-oh, and he found a safe place, found a safe haven. So life is going to keep presenting us with these situations, sometimes mild, sometimes intense. I was just talking with a friend today who had a very intense Um, situation arise in a life and a friendship, someone she's very connected to, completely out of the blue, completely unexpected, and obviously somewhat uh, shaken by it. But as these episodes of life affect us, it's easy to become despairing, hopeless, feel defeated, or what's the point? But if we move in that direction, that doesn't help the world. It doesn't help others and it doesn't help ourselves. The Brahma Viharas show us that there's another way of responding to any situation on the scale from painful to very pleasurable. There's an awakened response that's possible. So as we cultivate the Brahma Viharas, they become our allies in training the heart to an appropriate response in whatever situation comes up. As we've said, loving kindness is the foundation, this basic sense of goodwill and care. And when that tender heart meets the truth of suffering, the response naturally is compassion. When it meets a situation of happiness, the response is sympathetic joy or mudita. And if no particular stimulus is coming in, the open heart can rest in equanimity, where it's balanced among the joys and sorrows that life can present. 
I mentioned the other morning this question about um, if we are trained to accept the moment as it is in our meditation practice, how can we have a wish for the suffering of the world to go away? And it's through this quality of equanimity that we combine those two. When the Buddha looked out on the world, he saw a vast range of suffering. And he also knew he had the key to unlock it for people, but it depended on their effort. So through his compassion, he wished to alleviate their pain. Through his equanimity, he understood they needed to do the work and he couldn't do it for them. So this is how we balance the compassion and the loving kindness and the sympathetic joy are all held in this deep rest that equanimity brings to us. So we begin with loving kindness and on the easy end of the spectrum, self-benefactor and friend as we've been practicing for these last few days. Sally talked a little this morning about the neutral person, bringing that person in uh, for loving kindness. A neutral person is really a turning point in our practice of loving kindness because we find as we start to wish them well that we can care a lot about somebody that we don't really know. I was teaching a day long on metta once at um, a gathering in, in Marin County and a guy had come down from Sonoma and took the day and gave instructions for all these categories including the neutral person and he went home and he took as his neutral person a cashier in a supermarket near him. And he saw me about a year later and he told me the story. He said, I practiced uh, metta for my neutral person every time I went into that supermarket. And I got so kind of fond of that person, I started to get nervous when I was checking out. <laughs> and he never really knew that person well, and yet he had this big reservoir of care about her and connection to her. (laughs) So the neutral person opens us up to the possibility that we can care for the seven billion people on the planet whom we haven't yet met and therefore have no reason to dislike. That's kind of a nice situation, right? So it's said that metta becomes, as it extends to all beings, like a gentle rain that falls everywhere without exception. That's what gives it this universal or boundless quality. The Buddha made a a reflection about this that I find really interesting. Sort of why we might choose to care about the people that we run into. He said, given all the many lives that we have all spent in this realm of samsara. It's not easy to find a being who at some point has not been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, or your daughter. Now you may or may not hold this view of rebirth that the Buddha taught often and referred to many, many, many times in his discourses. But what if it was true? What if we all have been, especially those of us in this room who seem to be connected in a way that a lot of people in the world may not be, what if we have been that close to one another in the past? Could be many times in the past. It would make us feel differently about each other, wouldn't it? We would start to care more. Of course, that might depend how you feel about your family of origin, so I don't know. But it makes us closer than we would have thought we were. And it really can open up our metta practice to all of life, all human beings. So just as we've been reading in the Metta Sutta, just as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. This is our instruction. And as Sally said, it doesn't mean we have to like people, but we can care about them. We can wish them happiness. We can wish them well. And as we meditate with these reflections of loving kindness, we understand every being that lives wants the same things we want. Every being wants safety, happiness, health, and ease. 
So in that we're, we're all alike. So as we open up to the welfare of beings in the world, we also discover there's a lot of suffering around us, some suffering inside us. How do we relate to that? Sometimes not easy. Classically, it's said that the hardest of the Brahma Viharas to practice is mudita, because the factor of envy comes up so easily and so readily. It's hard for us to be joyful about someone else's happiness because the envy is so, so nearby. But that's not what I found. In one six-week period of retreat, I spent 10 days doing intensive practice of each of the four Brahma Viharas. It was a wonderful um, experience to really get into the depth of each one. And each of them can be practiced for concentration as well as for the heart quality that it brings. So for me, the hardest to practice was not mudita. Mudita was actually the most joyful. I just found it really uplifting to be with happiness all day. The hardest for me was practicing compassion because it was about staying with suffering all day long, 18 hours a day, in me and all the other people that I brought to mind. I find it difficult. I think most of us find it difficult to be right up against suffering. So we found ways to avoid doing that. So we have lots of different defenses to keep from having that experience. Carl Jung, the psychologist, said that neurosis is basically a refusal to confront suffering. Well, that's a strong statement. Because we don't want to face suffering directly, we find these uh, suspect ways to avoid it that are our neuroses. So, take a look at, our, at the relationship of the world to suffering. We avoid it, we turn away, we deny it. Often we try to fix it. If we find a friend is suffering, we really you know, go quickly. At least, I think it's a male pattern. We go quickly to fixing. I think women are a little better at just being with a friend in suffering. We might tend to blame it on someone else. If it's our suffering, they made me suffer. You know, it was my mother, it was the society, or it was capitalism. We judge it as wrong. This suffering shouldn't be happening. We judge ourselves as wrong. If I was an okay person, this suffering wouldn't be happening. Or we turn to something pleasurable. The Buddha pointed to this really directly in one sutta. He said, for the ordinary untrained person, the only escape from painful sensation is to turn to a source of pleasure. So this is the um, beginning of addiction. We look at all the pleasurable outlets that the world offers, and there are many, and we become addicted as a way of avoiding the pain. Or if it's suffering with other people, we tell ourselves stories about it. We rationalize it. It's not my problem. It's their karma. Oh, it's those kinds of people. But suffering is the proximate cause for compassion to arise. If we want this quality of compassion to develop, we need to touch the suffering in ourselves and in others really directly. So in our meditation, can we touch it, be close to it, and just feel it without having to make it go away or fix it or avoid it? Can we just feel the suffering in ourselves and in another? If we open to that, then we find the compassion can come through. And the more we can expand the compassion for our own suffering, the more we'll be able to be with the suffering of the world. The less we're able to be with our own, the less we can be with others. It's really the same dynamic. So it's wonderful to be in a sangha because you see these amazing examples of compassion. So I was teaching a retreat, a month-long retreat one year at Spirit Rock. And there was a meditator who worked in the kitchen who had an illness that uh, 
had attacked his kidneys. And both his kidneys were failing. So if he went back from the retreat, he was going to need to be in dialysis, perhaps for a long, perhaps for the rest of his life, because waiting for a kidney transplant can be a long uh, process. Depends on the need, the availability, and lots of different factors. So one of the other meditators happened to overhear a conversation in the kitchen about this. This other meditator had no relationship to the yogi who was ill, and she formed the intent during that retreat to offer the meditator a kidney if they were a match. And she held to it. You know, going through the retreat, obviously she probably went through a lot of ups and downs and questions, but she came out of the retreat, she held to it, she approached the person, offered the kidney, the person accepted the offer, they went into testing, it took some time, but ended up that she donated a kidney to this other yogi whom she had never met before. So a beautiful act of compassion and wanting to help someone else in a situation of suffering. Suffering can really affect us, can change us. There's a quite interesting story, moving story, about King Asoka. He lived in the 3rd century BCE in India, And he was probably the first emperor of India to unify almost all of that subcontinent. Uh, How does a king unify a subcontinent? It's not by loving kindness. He doesn't just say, come on, give up your own ruler and, you know, come under my government. It's by wars. So he, he battled fiercely you know, many other rulers on that subcontinent, battle after battle, war after war. And in one of the last ones, it said that 100,000 people died in the war with this one ruler. And it culminated in one particular battle. Afterwards, the king was surveying the battlefield and the carnage that was just laid out in front of him thousands and thousands of corpses from both sides dead on the battlefield. And as he watched, he saw a Buddhist monk walking across the battlefield in a state of great serenity and peace and calm. And he was looking at the ruins and thinking, what have I done? Is this worth it? I'm responsible for all these people dying. And he watched the Buddhist monk walking across in a state of complete calm and peace. And he thought, this person has nothing. I have all the wealth of what he knew as his world. I could do anything. He's at peace and I'm tormented. What is his secret? So at this time, Buddhism was not anything like a hugely widespread religion in India. But he became so interested that he pursued the teachings and he changed his rule completely. He followed the Buddha's teachings. He gave up war. He assured all the um, rulers around him that he'd given up his aims of expansion and conquering more territory. He encouraged everyone in his kingdom to respect all the religions, not to fight over religion any longer. He distributed food widely so that poverty essentially became a non-issue in the kingdom. And he outlawed animal sacrifices, having compassion for creatures. And then he put up edicts all around the country proclaiming Dharma principles. These were the principles that he wanted people to abide by. So it was a huge change that came out of a moment of compassion or an hour or a day or whatever from seeing the effects of war, the devastation of war. And he changed the history of India from that. Here we have a formal practice to develop compassion. And that can transform our relationship to suffering. 
I remember uh, one time, some time ago, I was at home, and there was a student who I'd been working with for a couple of years, who called me on the phone in a great uh, state of fear. And the student said, I'm just going through this intense fear, and I've tried working with Vipassana, and it's just not letting up. I'm really in the grip of it, and it's really painful. And I could tell there was panic in the person's voice because it was an overwhelm situation. I said, okay, you've already tried Vipassana. Let's try something different. So I gave her the instruction for the compassion phrase, which she hadn't worked with before. I said, just hold yourself, feel the fear, and repeat this to yourself over and over and over. At least 20 minutes, at least 30 minutes, longer if you can. And then let me know what happens. So about an hour later, she called back and said, it completely changed. The compassion phrase, just let me be with the experience And then the panic went out because I knew I could be with the experience. And as the panic went out, the fear went way down. And then it became really manageable. So compassion has this kind of ability. I remember in my own experience when I started working with the compassion practice and applying it at a time in retreat when I was in some state of pain and suffering. I can't remember what it was. I felt this different voice coming in coming alive inside me and it was it was like i was channeling kuan yin so yeah the pain was still there but this other voice was coming in that was very mature adult balanced confident and with that i knew i could be with that experience that was going on completely changed it for me So essentially what compassion does as we grow it, it lets us hold the experience in a bigger frame that I would say is a bigger heart. And it's a little bit like the title on uh, Sharon Salzberg's book, A Heart as Wide as the World. We find we can accommodate the pain of the world as we grow that heart. We can still be overwhelmed, but we can come back to that as a baseline, as a foundation. Because compassion is in touch with suffering, it's not an exuberant state. So you feel the suffering that you're in touch with. One of my teachers said that it's like the mood at sunset. There's a beauty And there's also this kind of wistful poignancy that's there. If you could say a touch of sadness because of the suffering that's present. But there's also a sublime kind of feeling that's a kind of beauty as the compassion is pure. Now we've talked about the fact that compassion can easily tip over into a near enemy. One of them is overwhelming grief. When we just feel the suffering is too much to bear, whether it's ours or another's, and we just feel too burdened down, and we can't find the strength, we can't find the equanimity to hold it with balance. So that's one possibility. That's a near enemy. And in a situation like that, it's maybe more helpful to turn to some subject that will bring uplift. Turn to someone like a benefactor or friend, a child or a pet, or turn to mudita, focus on the, the wholesome, the positive, and let the heart be picked up from this place of overwhelm. And the other near enemy is an element of pity, not rapture, P-I-T-I, but the old English pity, P-I-T-Y, where we feel sorry for the person, but it involves a looking down on them. It's, oh, too bad about your suffering. Well, I'm not feeling that. So I'm in an okay place, so it doesn't really touch me. And what's going on with pity is that we're kind of looking down on someone from above. 
And there's an element of conceit in that. We're in a superior position because we're not suffering currently. But of course, if we reflect, it could be the other way around at any time. So compassion shows us that we're really all in the same boat in terms of our vulnerability. We may be temporarily away from suffering, but things could change and we could be feeling that. It's something that connects us to everyone. It's universal. This is from a poem called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. She's a Palestinian-American poet. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. Before you know the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. So compassion opens us up to this universality of sorrow our own vulnerability to suffering and connects us to all things that live. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty, which is enjoying someone else's suffering. And we talked about this a little bit the other night. Most of us don't think of ourselves as cruel people. But if you look closely at anger, you might find within it an element of ill will, which is wanting someone else to hurt, to suffer. And that's just a step away from cruelty. So it may not be that far away for us. And sometimes we're in the midst of very complicated situations where there could be blame on many sides. You know, a family situation, a situation at work, lots of colleagues. And you can see everybody's piece of contributing to it. And you may not be able to see a clear way to resolve the situation. But one thing you can always take as a refuge is compassion for everyone involved without needing to judge right and wrong. Just to see the shared suffering in the situation. So compassion also lends itself to seeing the potential for suffering for all beings, and therefore the wish for all beings to be free from suffering. So both loving kindness and compassion can grow into this feeling for all beings everywhere. That's when they become boundless. And then there's something else interesting that happens when metta and compassion grow up to become boundless. I want to pose this to you as practitioners. If you feel metta for all beings, you want all beings to be happy. What's the most complete way for all beings to be happy? It's for them to awaken, isn't it? The most complete form of happiness is their own awakening, their own liberation. So that wish starts to come in. And as compassion grows up, you really want all beings to be free from suffering. What's the most complete way for a being to be free from suffering? It's also to awaken, isn't it? So when metta and compassion grow up in this really boundless way, as a Dharma practitioner, you want all beings to find happiness and to be free from suffering through awakening. What's the best way for you to help toward this goal? It's to awaken yourself, isn't it? Can you help bring beings out of suffering altogether if you haven't awakened yourself? Not so likely. 
But once we have awakened, then we have the possibility of bringing others out of suffering completely. So this can become a real wish for us. May I awaken in order to help bring others out of their suffering and into real happiness. And this wish is called bodhicitta, sometimes translated as the awakening heart. Then this wish can be fed back as a motivation in our practice. We can form the wish to practice, the wish to become awakened as the way that we can help others to achieve real happiness and a true end of suffering. So this is the source, the quality of bodhicitta really grows out of the maturing of boundless metta and boundless compassion. So this is expressed you know, in a really nice way in one of the quotes in the study guide. It's short, you don't need to look it up now, but a quote on the back page, number 80. Crossing is a word used in the Buddha's teachings for crossing the flood of the kilesas, the taints, whatever. It means crossing over to the other shore, becoming awakened. Crossed, I would cross others. Freed, I would free others. Tamed, I would tame. Calmed, I would calm. Comforted, I would comfort. Attained to Nibbana, I would lead to Nibbana. This is the expression of that quality of bodhicitta. This is what I deeply wish for myself and the world, to come to awakening and help bring others to awakening. This was a, um, a fifth century, roughly fifth century, teacher from Sri Lanka named uh, Dhammapala. If you like, if you resonate with this sense of bodhicitta, you might like to bring it in at the start of sittings. I do this when, when I sit, both in daily life and on retreat. I just say a few lines to myself. Something like, um, by the merit of generosity and other virtuous actions, may I come to awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. So it just renews my motivation at the beginning of each sitting period. By the merit of generosity and other virtuous actions, may I come to awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. So this is the quality of bodhicitta. And of course, the Dalai Lama is a big fan of this practice. It's one we have to remind ourselves of because it's very easy for it to get lost you know, in the wake of our self-centeredness. Even the Dalai Lama, who's one of the great practitioners of our day, says, I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So we don't have to imagine that we're going to become great bodhisattvas or saviors of the world. But we can put this motivation in and it can inspire us. It can help broaden our vision and keep connecting us to all of life. So then we also notice as we're connecting to the world how much joy there is. And this leads us into the practice of mudita, the response of the heart to happiness, taking joy in another's happiness. And I remember one time I called a friend who was on the other side of the country. I needed to talk about some business stuff. And I just started by asking her, how are you doing? And she said real enthusiastically, I'm wonderful. And her answer just so picked me up. I said, I'm wonderful too. (laughs) And that was just that contagious nature of happiness. It was just such a delight to hear that from her. So Mudita kind of has a double dose. 
of happiness. Like double espresso, you have a double dose of happiness. It doesn't have to come from big things. You know, I just think about your lives as yogis here on this retreat. There are so many moments in the day that have little bits of happiness with them. You know, getting out of bed and it's a little cool maybe in your room, but you get to have a hot shower. Or after a day of rain, you walk outside and the sky is blue. Or you catch a sight of a deer somewhere in a meadow or off the road as you're walking. Or a cardinal flies by on the uh, driveway out to the main road. Or when the sky is clear, you watch the moon rise a little later at night. Or one of my favorite times of the day, lying down to go to bed. Such a relief, isn't it? You've been practicing and working hard all day, and you get to lie down. Ah, feels so good you know, for the head to hit the pillow. Unfortunately, for, for me, that never lasts very long because I go to sleep, I wake up, and I start practicing again. But it's a few nice moments. <laughs> and you know, we are so lucky here to have the beautiful nature that we have all around us. Nature is so sustaining and so uplifting. One of the hardest retreats I ever did, I was a fairly new monk in Thailand, and I practiced in a a forest monastery up north, outside of Chiang Mai, where the teacher didn't speak English, and there were no other uh, English speakers, monks, that I I could talk to. So I, I went for three months with real silence, apart from the chants that we would do around the mealtime. So I didn't hear any Dharma talks. We didn't have MP3 players back then. I didn't have any interviews from the teacher. I was just practicing completely on my own for three months in you know, a new country, new culture. And it was difficult. You know, it was very difficult at times. But what sustained me was the beauty of the nature. The monastery was out in the forest. There was a creek that ran through the center of it. My little cottage was right next to the creek, so I could see that and hear the running water. And the sun would come up, you know, most days. And it was very beautiful. Trees all around. So I felt the, the beauty of nature really sustained me through that time, because there, there wasn't a lot else. The nature was always there. And then I find practicing in Asia, there are always these opportunities for for joy, practicing in cultures where the Dharma has been embedded for so long. I went to Burma, I think I mentioned, to be ordained for a second time some years ago. And a student knew that I was going and wanted to offer some support, so she gave me some uh, money to take to offer to the monastery. She said, you know, take this gift and offer it, use it in the way that it would seem most beneficial. There was a few hundred dollars, which in Asia can, can, go, can go away. So I got to the monastery, and I got the vibe. It was way out in the country in southeast Burma, far, far from the capital. And at that time, there were 750 people practicing in the monastery, it was something like 450 monks, 150 nuns, and the rest were, were lay people. And I thought, wow, maybe I could take this money and on behalf of the student, sponsor a lunch for everybody in the monastery. Offer a dana on her behalf to everybody who was practicing there. So I was still a lay person. I hadn't yet ordained. I could still handle cash. So I went to the, um, to the clerk of the monastery, and I said, um, I have this gift from a friend overseas, and I was wondering, could I sponsor a lunch for everyone? And you know, Burma is a poor country, and what wealth they have has been siphoned off by the leaders. So it's a poor country. Um, I thought there would be a real welcoming of this gift, and the clerk told me, oh, all the lunches for the next three months have already been offered. And I thought that was so beautiful. In this one of the poorer countries on the face of the earth, people had already come along 
to offer meals to feed all 750 people who were sitting. And this kind of practice is what gives rise to our meal dana, which we see the notices of you know, every day at lunch. So, um, so I arranged that uh, there was enough money to provide two what are called special breakfasts, really tasty extra food for everyone. So we did that with the money. And then on the day, you go down, and at that meal, the, the name of the person or family or village who donated the funds for that meal were put up on this big whiteboard, both in Burmese, which I couldn't read, and in English, which I could. And so you walk in and you see it's these people who have made possible the meal, the lunch for today. So for the breakfast, her name was up there. But then for the lunch, the people who had offered the meal would usually come to the monastery. And they would watch the monks go through the line and fill their bowls from the funds that they had donated. And they would be sitting off to the side, typically villagers from from nearby. And usually it might take, you know, a whole family or several families to make the money to offer the lunch to everyone who was there. And they would be sitting off to the side and watching people go through the meal line. And they would be dressed in their best clothes. So this was was a very special day for them, a very special outing. And you could just see the happiness in their faces because the first monk to go through was Paok Sayadaw. He had something like 50-some reigns at that point, 50-some years as a monk. He was the most senior monk, and he was a teacher, so he went through first. And they were just beaming with being able to offer to Paok Sayadaw all the other accomplished practitioners, the monks, the nuns, and then the lay people. So it was, a, it was a very joyful thing for them to be able to do that, to offer that. So this is sometimes translated as sympathetic joy because our hearts would really resonate with theirs. We'd pick up on their joy, and it was just delightful. And sometimes it's translated as appreciative joy. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, the American monk who uh, was a student of Ajahn Chah. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. So we encourage this joy with beauty. It's appreciation of what is around. So as we direct the meditation on appreciative joy to self, it often comes through as gratitude. And gratitude is a really beautiful state of mind because it undercuts both greed and aversion. When there's gratitude, we appreciate what we have so we don't crave for more. And when we feel gratitude, we appreciate what we have so we don't dislike our situation. We don't give in to discontent. We're happy where we are. So we have a friend who has um, kids and and grandkids who's also a wise practitioner and uh, teacher and takes the opportunity to to teach when, when possible. So she was talking to one of her granddaughters on Christmas Day, talking on the phone because they were a long way, a long way away. And the granddaughter had just gone through the list of presents she'd gotten for Christmas, which of course made her very happy. So our friend said, when you get lots of presents, do you feel thankful for what you have? Or does it make you want more? And the little girl who was about eight at this time said, oh, Nana, I want more. And so our friend said, oh, that's too bad. And the little girl was listening and said, what do you mean? And our friend said, well, haven't you noticed that when you're thankful for what you have, you feel good? And when you're wanting more, it doesn't feel as good. 
And the little girl said, oh, Nana, you're right. Now, that was a teaching on, on gratitude. At one retreat, I went into the retreat um, at the start of November. It was here. And you probably know the start of November in New England is not a particularly uplifting time for weather. So it was rainy, it was gray, it was already cold, it was windy. And as I was getting into the retreat, the weather was kind of weighing on me. I thought, oh, gosh, am I going to get really gloomy with this weather? So I decided to um, do some gratitude reflection. And I wrote down on a piece of paper all the things in my life that I was grateful for. Just wrote down as many as I could think, the big things and the little things. It ended up filling a whole page. And then every morning in the retreat, I would read through that list and remember how lucky I was. You know, to be practicing was one thing I was grateful for, but there were lots of others. So it really served to dispel this sense of um, gloominess or sadness about my, about my situation. So Sally and I, some years ago, were teaching a group of senior students, and we were talking about gratitude. And one member in the group said to another, hey, let's email each other every night before we go to bed one thing we were grateful for that day. And so two of them started doing it, and then other people in our group started doing it. And as far as I know, that's where the daily email gratitude practice came from was that group of senior students. So it's a good practice if you have a Dharma buddy to to do it with. So it's very helpful to have things in your mind, things in your life that you can call to mind to bring up this sense of uplift. So later in that retreat when I was uh, when I'd ordained and I was sitting in Burma um, with Paok Sayadaw, I hit some I hit some difficult patches. So I was in robes. I hadn't been in robes for years. The practice was very narrow because it was just keeping the attention at the upper lip, basically eighteen hours a day, no other focus. The schedule was demanding. The shortest sit was an hour and a half. Longest sit was two hours. And I happened to join and get ordained right at the start of the rains retreat. And I should have known the rains retreat was so called for a reason. <laughs> so it started raining, and I didn't see the sun for about three weeks. And then I, you know, I read the rainfall figures later. It was raining about three inches a day. It was a real tropical experience for those, for those three weeks. I was eating one meal a day, and um, I was losing, as I look back at the end of the retreat, I lost close to half a pound a day on that diet of one meal, which had very little protein. And I remember it kind of all came together. I was walking back to my kuti, to my little hut, one lunchtime. It was raining, of course. So I had a bowl, which was hot with the hot food. I had a little bit of dessert in the bowl lid, which was upturned on top. I was cradling it in my left arm, and I was holding an umbrella in my right, and my robes, which I had not quite learned to tie well again, were sliding off my left shoulder. And as I was walking along in this kind of precarious situation in the rain, a group of Burmese lay people were on the path, which was muddy and running with water, moved off to the side, knelt down, and bowed to me. And I was just hoping I wouldn't come completely unclothed in front of them. So I managed to get back to my kuti and enjoy my lunch and put my umbrella away and get dry. But it marked kind of a low point in my whole journey. And I was feeling at the end of my rope and very challenged, down in spirit, it was all these things coming together. And I really didn't know what to do because um, I didn't have a good friend there. I didn't know who to talk to about this. Sayadaw was not exactly on the emotional end of the spectrum. And so I had brought along this photograph of the Dalai Lama and a very inspirational quote from Shanti Deva, the Bodhisattva kind of quote. 
So I turned to the Dalai Lama in a great mood of, of sincere supplication and humility. I said, Your Holiness, do you have any advice for me? And immediately there was this very clear response in his voice, his kind of English acts, Indian accented English. And the response was, Stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. A positive attitude is the best support. And then the transmission ended. (laughs) That was it. Stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. A positive attitude is the best support. I thought that was brilliant advice. Because if I could remember what cheerful felt like, I could sort of put myself there, and it really helped. You know, when would we not want to be cheerful, optimistic, and confident, right? So this is one of the things that mudita opens up to us, an ally to bring, bring in cheer and confidence. So that's a teaching that I've relied on many, many times. Stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. Remember what that feels like. So the Dalai Lama himself, of course, manifests this you know, in a really beautiful way. He has probably seen as much suffering as anyone I can think of because he kept hearing the reports, of, basically, of genocide after he had fled Tibet in 1959. And something like a million people were killed in the decade following, and most of the monasteries and nunneries were were kind of wiped out. And yet he has this huge pool of happiness. So a few years ago there was a gathering in Dharamsala, where he lives, a gathering of scientists, because he's really into science and lining Buddhism up with science and doing research to prove meditation. And so one of the scientists um, over an informal gathering asked him, what was the happiest time of your life? And I thought it would be when he was living back in the Potala and Tibetan culture was all intact and he was under the supervision of his tutors and many, many, many monks and nuns were practicing all over the country. I thought it would be that kind of time that he would point to. They asked, what was the happiest time of your life? And he said, I think right now. (laughs) I thought that was so great. It's the best possible answer. So with, um, with mudita, the near enemy is, as we've talked about, elation or over-exuberance. When there's an attachment to the happiness and we overthink it and we claim it as our own and project it into the future. And of course, that will, that will undermine it and eventually make it, it will chase it away. And the far enemy is Envy as though if somebody else has happiness, it's going to take away from ours. So after I graduated from college, I went into the Peace Corps. And in going into the Peace Corps, I left a relationship. I left a a girlfriend at that time to go off. I taught school in Malaysia for, for two years, which is where I first had contact with Thailand and kind of fell in love with the culture back then. So I'd left my girlfriend, but I still had feelings for her, but I wanted to do this teaching thing in Asia. And not long after I got settled at my school in Malaysia, I got a letter from my best friend who told me that he'd just gotten together with my girlfriend in a relationship. Um, Mudita was not the first response that <laughs> came to mind at that point. So I had to work with that envy and, uh, and jealousy. But we have a tool, and one of the beauties of mudita is it's said to dispel envy. They're very skillful in situations like that. So the last of the Brahma-viharas is this quality of equanimity. And I think I'll save this for a talk on another night. The Pali word is upeka. And it is this um, fundamental balance of mind that's not thrown off by the alternating pleasure and pain of life, both internally and externally. 
And in the Brahma Viharas, it's the balance that holds all the joys and all the sorrows of the world and ourselves without getting disturbed about it. So it's an extremely high value in the Buddha's teachings. It's the last of the Brahma Viharas. It's the last of the factors of enlightenment. In this meditation system of Mahasi Sayadaw, it is the last um, development before awakening happens. So it's a very powerful um, and desirable state. And we'll talk about it more um, another time. So I just want to close with a little bit of reflection on um, how the Brahma Viharas in their, in their totality make kind of a roadmap of the heart and its relationship to the world. The Brahma Viharas themselves you shouldn't be taken for granted. You shouldn't just assume, oh, I ought to be having metta. I ought to be having pure compassion. I ought to be having mudita. I ought to be having equanimity. These are high states. They are what I would call the awakened response to the circumstances of life. So we're kind of imitating the awakened ones when we find ourselves in these states. So you shouldn't expect, oh, this is going to be my normal way of operating. These are elevated states of being. Our normal kind of self-centered way of operating is described by the near enemies. So that's essentially where the near enemy comes from. It comes from normal, self-centered mind states. So affection with attachment, pity and looking down, or envy and looking up, or agitation instead of equanimity. This is the way the untrained mind tends to respond to changing circumstances. And then the far enemies are essentially the really unwholesome responses to life circumstances. And we definitely want to avoid those. The responses of ill will or cruelty or envy or agitation. We want to avoid those. So taken together, we have four Brahma-viharas by three qualities of the Brahma-vihara, the near enemy, the far enemy. This gives us a map of 12 responses to the world. As you start to practice with these, you really see how they describe or outline most of the range of possible responses that we will make to life situations. And using the Brahma-viharas as the tools we learn more and more how to move ourselves from the suffering places into the really wholesome and awakened places. So this whole map, this whole system of the Brahma-viharas with their near and far enemies provides a really wonderful roadmap to the responses to life's conditions. And we can look at ourselves through that almost any time. So I just want to close with uh, one other version of the Brahma-vihara phrases. This is the standard Tibetan expression of the four Brahma-viharas. They have them also. I haven't heard of the practices being quite like ours, but they have the concept of the Brahma-viharas. So I'll just close with reading these qualities from the Tibetan point of view. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue, May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. May all beings remain unseparated from the sacred happiness, which is free from sorrow. May all beings come to rest in the great equanimity beyond attachment to those near and far. So let's just sit together for a minute.
crossed, I would cross others. Freed, I would free. Tamed, I would tame. Calmed, I would calm. Comforted, I would comfort. Attained to Nibbana, I would lead to Nibbana. So thank you for your attention. We have about 30 minutes for walking and then um, we will come back and lead uh, a new chant, the last of the four pages of chanting on pervading. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.